Second Bananas is recorded on unceded Indigenous land belonging to the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Unceded means that this land was never surrendered, relinquished, or handed over in any way. We support the various strategies that Indigenous peoples use to protect their land and their communities, and we commit to working in solidarity with them. We acknowledge that as people living and working on these lands, we are accountable to those who have cared for this land since time immemorial. It is our intention to continue learning how to honor this responsibility. I need break pro rescue. Yeah, that. You know, it, I wonder if it would have been killed by the other crows if it had like gone back to the main. I don't flock. think they know because like that was part of the whole reason. Another thing they said not to feed birds like is because then more birds congregate and they can spread the flu between them. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so they haven't, they've been like, that's part of the problem is like now they're protecting these babies, but these babies might need like quarantine right to survive and to not spread it to other crows so it's kind of like this like well we kind of saved their baby but we also kind of just like possibly took it away and they'll never see it again right yeah. like it's it's kind of one of those like it was yeah but i feel like crows get pretty ruthless though and that's one of the reasons why they can stop i think the spread of disease quickly is like if they do notice one of their like flock is like weaker than they'll actually like sometimes kill it in like a feeding frenzy and that's why i think that's why it gets the name the murder of crows it's not because it's like you find them near dead bodies it's because they'll actually that's how they purge yeah, yeah. They'll, they kill they kill their own oh, kind only if they're the like... strong only the strong <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah marginal tax rates marginal tax rates <laughs> there's no such thing as society ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah totally did it a favor corvids are amazing yeah they're very very intense birds Boids. <laughs> intense boys intense little birdie boys yeah. crows um, i'll send you some pictures uh but yeah oh yeah uh yeah cool all right uh welcome everyone to second bananas the podcast about history's greatest garfunkels the clout behind the clout that you didn't know about uh my name is joe hi i'm wes and I'm Craig. And uh, what we do here is we take a figure or person, place, or, or thing from history uh, that stands in someone else's much larger shadow, and we, you know, do some research, talk about it, learn about it, and uh, all learn, laugh, love together. And <laughs> Don't forget um, the banter. Don't forget the banter and the, the digressions. Quips. The quips. Yeah. We, get, we do a lot of quip in here um we've recently upgraded our quip software uh wes give us a quip um fuck error 505 oh no <laughs> e- equipment malfunction equip oh yeah quip i needed a subject i didn't i didn't have a subject loaded uh, um, i could I existence existence yeah existence uh, fruit than that buddy uh so that <laughs> happened <laughs> That's the quip about existence. Yeah. Uh, Damn it. So that past entire universe and all things past, present, and future happened. Whoa. 
That's what you say at the end of the heat, okay. the heat death at the end of the universe. Yeah, whoa. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's good. That's good. We started off with some 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 comedy for the folks. I hope you're now. All I know laughing. what a quip is. Now I know how to quip properly. Yeah, exactly. Give us another one, Wes. Lay it on us. Um, subject. Wait, can you the subject? Subject. Uh, friendship. Seven. No, go with Fr- friendship. Friendship. This isn't your dad's friendship. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Saturn. Yeah, yeah. It's Friendship on Saturn. Actually, Friendship on Saturn is a good title for a movie. The best friendship of all. Mm-hmm. One could argue. I don't know. I prefer Friendship on Uranus. Uranus. Yeah, okay. God. Whatever. So immature. No, I think I, I'm not talking about the planet. West. Uh, uh, oh, isn't on, it Uranus? Yeah, on, exactly. I like friendship on our anuses. Uranuses. I do like it when they like they they're talking about um like the the god from from mythology that the planet's named after, and it's like Uranus. They're like, we'll just avoid this one. We'll just avoid this one. Yeah, way more Yeah, Uranus. That's way better. Yeah. Yeah. What can I say? Uranos. I'll call the planet that from now on. Uranos. Yeah. I'll call. Uh, I'll call my anus Uranos. Uh, <laughs> let's get into our subject. Our subject is a one Henry A. Wallace. Uh, I have titled the episode Henry A. Wallace, American Anti-Fascist, and we will soon see why. But um, who was Henry Wallace? Well. Little basic facts. Uh, He was a uh, politician, uh, farmer, writer, editor, uh, gad about town in Iowa. (laughs) Didn't didn't they name the O. Henry chocolate bar after him? I'm pretty sure they did. Yeah, I'm 100% sure that was him. And I think so. Yeah, because yeah, it was a really significant fork in the road in American political history. And you know, when it panned out the way that it did the reaction oh henry yeah oh henry oh, oh henry oh. i was ready to like oh henry. <laughs> all right that, yeah that makes sense because, i mean it really yeah. it works on a lot of different levels i think that yeah. was the point of naming in the chocolate bar absolutely 100 <laughs> percent. we're not going to fact check that but no just, yeah. we stand by it yeah levels <laughs> it, it has levels there's no other uh figure in history named henry that no exactly bar could be this would be it no, but it's right it could be oh henry too like it's like an irish thing like, oh henry oh henry yes. <laughs> oh henry is it yeah. like is it like is it like Seamus a guy named oh henry or yeah. is it like uh the town crier getting mad at someone named henry oh henry <laughs> or is it like oh henry what have you been doing what have you been yeah. doing oh henry you're down at That's the pub again oh henry yeah like you a shameless oh henry or something <laughs> we're back to henry a back wallace to henry a wallace henry Agard Wallace. His middle A-guard. name is Agard, which is pretty Agard. It feels Whoa. a lot like Asgard. Yeah, it sounds like it's got a Viking kind of. Henry Agard Point. Wallace. Agard. Yeah, this guy was a major uh, Viking for sure. He would definitely. <laughs> <would've>... <laughs> he seemed like he was pretty tall. Like I don't know. If he was Vikings a big were guy. Tall, but... Yeah, um, he was kind of a lurch. Uh, I like him. I like yeah. him though. Um, yeah. So Henry Agard, he was uh, most famously uh, a the Secretary of Agriculture and uh, Vice President for one term under none other than Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Uh, FDR. FDR. Um, the the four term president. Um, 
Like a big awesome. man. <laughs> yeah. uh, or That's what you call winning. Yeah, exactly. Like, That's how you win. None like, of this yeah. one term. Yes. One terms, Weak. two terms. <laughs> yeah. Two Weak terms? Sauce. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> What are Di- you even doing? Two terms? You guys are cowards. Third Maxing term. Maxing out at eight years. Yeah. yeah. Come, Come on. on. It's barely a decade. It's not at even least... a hard job. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing difficult about that job at all. Yeah. Uh, at least die in office. Right? Yeah. Come on. Dude, that's that's really like that's why FDR is really the goat. Like he did a lot of cool shit, uh, but dying in office was by far the coolest. <laughs> Tops. Tops. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, then you're enshrined really yeah. in the myth oh, yeah. in the mythology at exactly. that stage. So yeah, um as you guys can probably tell, um Henry was kind of part of the New Deal Democrat surge in the uh the the 20s and 30s and in a way he was kind of um even more of a new dealer than most of the other new deal politicians. And we'll, we'll kind of get into that, but, um, new dealer, mm-hmm. he was new dealer. New yeah. He was the new dealist. Mm. Um, yeah. <laughs> so he was mostly known for that. Um, he did try and run after he kind of, he was eventually replaced on the ticket by Her- uh, Harry S. Truman, who is our second banana, um, in the 1945 uh, okay. election. Uh, and then, of course, like we said, FDR uh, went out like a G, died in office, and Truman took over. Um, I think uh, I don't want to talk too much about Truman. We will get into him more later when we actually get to his part to play. But mm-hmm. I think my favorite thing out of all the stuff I read or heard about Truman was um, British ambassador Lord Halifax characterized Truman as an honest and diligent mediocrity. Cool, cool. That sounds like a really cool thing to have someone say about you. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he's he wasn't even done spitting. He was gonna keep going. Uh, he had another sentence: a bungling, if well-meaning, amateur <laughs> surrounded by Missouri County courthouse caliber friends. I feel like okay. I should have said that in. Like, like I should have said that in. Yeah, yeah, I know, right? What's, what's, what's that in layman? He just surrounds himself with listen dimwits. Let me try it again in a very posh English accent, like an honest and diligent mediocrity. A bungling, if well-meaning amateur, surrounded by Missouri County courthouse caliber friends. That was not a good. <laughs> no, 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 that was great. It really I, added it was good. the um, It had a thank you. Cheese-ness I appreciate to it, yeah. you guys building me up like that when I do a bad act. That's what we're here it was for. Good. Yeah, that's what we're here for. <laughs> it was really good. Thank I enjoyed you. it. Um, yeah, basically, Wes, he was kind of a he was a machine politician. He was there. He was like a guy right. who kind of okay. went with the party, did what he was told. Um, you know, wasn't wasn't going <sighs> to push his own issues as much as like just make sure he could keep staying in power and sort of and and please his mm. buddies and please the the people right. that got him there in the first place. And we all know who so most like, of the people are that get people into power in this country. And that well, also pretty, will come up. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Okay. No, no. He he was um yeah like a southern governor or something, right? He was a Southern Democrat for sure. He and his his parent, his grandparents were both slave owners, um, and his his mother was definitely a, a pro segregation campaigner. Let's call it. So um, that's gonna that's definitely gonna enter into it later because Henry was decidedly not pro segregation. Henry was probably one of the the biggest white voices in the forties, uh, calling for desegregation well before it happened um very interesting henry, henry no henry is go. very cool and like craig was saying off air before we started like 
uh, Henry Wallace was like a big hinge point uh, for history or sort of like a big, a big mm-hmm. what if kind of thing. Like a, a, one yeah. of those like, well, this is where the timelines branched off and we are in the darker timeline. Yeah. You know, De- for sure. And yeah, and yeah like you said, it, it came down to that, uh, whatever that decision not to have him like was he even on the ballot or was like, could he have been nominated or he wasn't? He, he was, he was in the running at the convention. In the forties, you had to be nominated to it, even be a vice president. You couldn't, you, the president or the, the president, whatever, the cannons just, yeah, no, right. It was, there was a process for that. And I don't know what it's like today. That's a, that's a good question, but um, yeah, it was also just a period. Um, something else. I had some big notes right at the top. Um, one of the ones is that um, this so Henry Henry Wallace was born in 1884 and he died in the 60s. And I think like um, he literally was born like 20 years after slavery was abolished, roughly. Like mm-hmm. he like the Civil War was in living memory when he was a child. Um, you know, like the, he I think like in terms of like I think there was a tweet a little while ago that was like, what's if someone was if for a human being to live like 100 years, say, what would be like? the period of a hundred years where they'd experience the most change possible. And I would say like, this would be a big contender, this mm-hmm. period, especially for Americans. Right. It was yeah. like, um, this was a, this, and that's part of like, also, um, he, he just is like all, he, he meets so many huge people and there's so many names. And like, that's why like a lot of stuff about him usually ends up focusing on one part of his life. Cause he, he, he was like, he, he did so many things and he interacted with so many like big people and big names that we, you will recognize. So I did have to do a lot of condensing and picking and choosing. And I kind of picked the stuff that would really like pop out his like second banana ness and that idea of like, what would happen if he had been vice president when, uh, when mm-hmm. FDR died instead of Truman. And that's why I picked Truman as the second banana and not say like, Bernie Sanders, who a lot of people, the part of the reason he's kind of gotten a resurgence in popularity is the book I read um, about him, which is called quite dramatically, The Battle for the Soul of the Democratic Party. Oh, wow. Uh, Craig, Craig's <laughs> muted, but I can hear that'll him get, scoffing. That'll get head. Uh, <laughs> get some eyes. That'll yeah, it's, some eyes. it's a very melodramatic title, but it's, um, it's, a, it's sort of comparing... Uh, lot of parallels made like it goes through his story and then it makes parallels to sort of other progressive politicians who were sort of like thwarted in their attempt to sort of push the democratic party left in one way or another at some point um which i you know don't always it doesn't want to go that thing it just doesn't want to go left it keeps Uh switching to the right i don't understand (laughs) it needs a realignment that somehow yeah we need we need a big realignment. Uh, we just need to hit it with a hammer until it realigns. That'll solve the problem. But that it was another thing that I should mention before we get started um, about Henry and the time he lived in was um, unlike now and unlike sort of Bernie Sanders' time or even when Jesse Jackson was, you know, sort of pushing his rainbow coalition uh, to push the Democratic Party into this different sort of more pluralistic Democrat, social Democrat, uh, you know, like big tent thing. Um, uh, this was a time where like, there were like Republicans who you would consider left wing. Uh, and there were Democrats who were like right wing. Um, mm-hmm. and, and like, especially like 
Lincoln had just abolished slavery like a couple of years before Henry was born, right. a couple of decades before Henry was born. So like the, the Republicans were not popular in the South at this point, there was actually a whole thing with the Dixiecrats and um, you know, senators like Strom Thurmond who were, so yeah, there were like uh, Republicans who would be considered uh, left-wing or progressive mm-hmm. or whatever, like um, well, Wendell Wilkie, who was one of FDR's opponents, who actually him and Henry agreed on a lot for different reasons. And then um, Fiorella LaGuardia, or LaGuardia, I think is probably one of the most famous. Um, there were a couple others. I can't remember the other guy's name. A lot of especially Italian uh, politicians in New York at this time were Republicans because they came from very Catholic families who were sort of socially mm-hmm. conservative in certain ways. And then, but they were very like pro labor because the Italians were all in the workforce and being exploited, um, you know, especially like from basically the 18, 1800s to the 1900s. There, there's definitely a different consideration for both like Italians, Greeks, Irish, um, and uh, especially, you know, even Roman Catholics and, and Jews too. But yeah. Yeah. But so, yeah, I, I feel like there was still, there was like both, there was a lot more right-leaning democrats too like at the time too like so it was both parties were the there were more had their like subsections that were like yeah much to the other side i think like wasn't the kkk still attending like dnc or whatever democratic conventions yeah well especially in the south there were open kkk members and stuff like that and like you know like i think like that's kind of the thing especially like when Henry's but almost seen as like yeah an arm of like like those are some of our voters that we can't quite alienate yet and stuff like that's that. also <laughs> the yeah that's also like the the roots of that political party though right yeah mm-hmm. yeah right very much at least in that region yeah it's so funny like to go back that far like you know to the 1800s or early 1900s and and see well, and, almost how reversed some of their ideals were. And politics were so different in a lot of ways then too, right? Like I don't. Absolutely. Um, yeah. It just was such a different thing to be a Republican or a Democrat or like a union member. Even you think about like, especially in the the late 1800s, like being in a union was still illegal in a lot of places, you know, and it was like, or it was at the very least you were probably getting the shit kicked out of you on the picket line you were in danger, your family might have been in danger in, in some places. Like um the the 1880s to the to the 1920s were like uh, America was one of the most radical countries in terms of its its uh labor uh you know the labor movement and and workers movements and stuff. It's one of their like in my opinion, one of their contributions to kind of the progress of history. A lot of people talk about the American like consumerism and different advances in obviously like the really um glitzy or sexy yeah um industries or areas right like space travel or like the military and mm-hmm. stuff like that mm-hmm. but um american innovation and even like just the clashes and um, progress that was made in america with the struggles that took place in this era very much which like established the weekend established yeah. the you know the eight-hour workday or like were the beginnings of those struggles um that was a huge contribution i think that i think gets overlooked a lot yeah and america no you're absolutely right craig and i think like um henry was a part of that too i think mm-hmm. is the other thing like like we'll see how how important it was for him 
for a lot of workers, uh, for workers and not just white workers either. And mm-hmm. I think that's an important part. And not just American workers. Yes. Yeah. As well. I think absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That was um, the huge part of it was the, the diversity of the, the movement, right. And, it was, and what made, it was what made it work. Yeah, absolutely. And also I think, um, yeah, I think too, like, we'll see how that, that sort of, when that was changed, when that changed in the labor movement, that's really one of the things that made it hard for him to continue to get traction. And part of the reason he was sort of like sent out into the wilderness is uh, the character of the leadership of the labor movement really changed post-World War II because of what was happening with culture and with, you know, like the Red Scare, the second Red Scare and everything. Um, and, and, and again, what Craig, like you said, like on, on one hand, like that consumerism is more what America is known for, but like, it was that change in the sort of forties and fifties of the labor movement as the war went, went, wound down and they wound up this like consumer apparatus that sort of also like became the sort of like golden handcuffs of the American labor movement. Yeah. Um, Cause you need that beast, like tying it all to capitalist consumerism. Yeah, or capitalist consumption means that once the war is over, then well, so what do you ramp up? Well, we got to start yeah marketing to people, playing on people's psychology that they need more stuff, and just one of these things or whatever isn't good enough, and start and, playing off of yeah, the, comparing yourself to your neighbors and like, well, how come you don't have as many toys? How come you don't have as much status as all the other people in your community? Uh-huh. And they could, so uh-huh. to replace that, to per, replace that production level that was needed for the war, but uh-huh. now isn't needed anymore, right? Yeah, and they could do that because specifically you had this whole generation of adult consumers who had grown up essentially like through the Depression and through World War II, were like you know came of age in these two hugely like difficult and traumatic experiences, and were more than ready to be sort of like. I, I need my day in the sun. I just like, I just survived like an incredible, like, like drought of like, and scarcity time. And then I went and and fought people who were literally like a death machine, a literal death machine in a certain sense. Where's my burgers, my shakes and my Cadillac or whatever. Yeah. It's like, uh, you understand Mm -hmm. why this sort of happened too. It was like, well, we fought for all this and we, and we deserve a time in the sun. And, you know, what came out of that was not necessarily was that a lot of other people ended up getting exactly what they fought to prevent in order to sustain that. But like, yeah, there was a, you know, there was a long period of strife that we'll see Henry lived through that people were just like, I don't want to fucking deal with this anymore. I did this. I did this for most of my life. I need a fucking break. You know, Um, I think, again that's not to excuse it or whatever but just to understand why it happened and also like you know there was sort of this uh you know the war was like oh right we can we can produce to no end we can produce more than anyone will ever need um so let's keep doing that how do we do that oh yeah we got to make toys we got to make treats or more bombs that's the other thing we can make that's the other thing we can keep making and if we keep making those and we keep making excuses to make those um, and that was something Henry really fought against. So, right. um, which I think ultimately was part of the reason he did not end up becoming president or vice, even vice president right. again. So, but wasn't part of his whole 
plan to help help pivot from the war was him like scaling back kind of the economy like pulling back on all the like over agriculture like yeah over farming that they were doing to let's get into it let's start um we will get to that i i think like let's start um going down the 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 list here um but yes kind of um so um again like i said henry was born in 1888 uh in iowa to henry c aka harry and may wallace he was the oldest of three brothers and sisters and henry's family uh were big landowners um in iowa they owned a lot of farmland they employed a lot of farmers um and they were you know they were big names like his grandfather Mm -hmm. uncle henry uh so three henry's um (laughs) uncle henry the oldest wallace um then his father henry c who was also known as harry and then henry himself um uncle henry was a reverend uh also a landowner owner and um he he was he edited a newspaper called wallace's farm journal which was essentially like the farmer newspaper for Iowa and even the surrounding states. Like this was like a big paper that most farmers read and uncle Henry and by extension, his son and his grandson were essentially like the voices of this sort of like journal and the, these farming groups in, in Iowa in this period. Um, The other big thing that uncle Henry was, was an advocate of the social gospel movement, which is, um, was basically like a, it was mostly North American. There was some uh, of it in Europe, but it was basically um, Protestants going, "Hey, I uh, I want to uh, I want to um, apply these Christian ideals of charity and social justice to uh, political issues." And I think that I know that everyone thinks that the heaven is coming and everything, but like, if we want to make the second coming happen we need to uh we need to make those conditions possible on earth first and that was where they well, that was the the message they took from uh i can't remember it's matthew something 1618 i think we're going to check that but mm. it will be in here um thy kingdom come thy will be done they interpreted that as like we need to do your will and make make the kingdom of heaven possible on earth before god uh, will bring it back to earth essentially uh, something like that okay and that's the thing that was clearly a big influence on Henry and uh, Harry and um, service to your fellow man was just a big thing for the Wallaces in general. You know, they, they definitely believed that it was important for them to uh, tackle and wrangle with serious issues of injustice and social justice, uh, which meant at the time, labor rights, racial discrimination, gender discrimination, all of that stuff was very important to them. And uh, another uh, big, another uh, party, another group founded out of the social gospel movement was of course the CCF, which would eventually become the NDP. Tommy um, Douglas was basically also a social gospel believer. Um, So there was a lot of this swimming around, especially if you look in uh, rural and farming areas in sort of like the North American plains and Midwest and, and Canadian plains and, and far and rural areas, especially where there's a lot of agriculture, that was really where the social gospel became a prominent movement. And that's how you get like socialist and communist and, and sort of like progressive farmers from this period. And that's, that's the, the water that Henry swam in basically. Hmm. Cool. Sounds like good water. 
Yeah. Well, you know, I think like we'll get into this more later, but I think it was also kind of a chauvinistic movement. Um, it was limited in its view to sort of Hen- Henry would uh, often say he wasn't a communist. He wasn't a socialist. He was a mm-hmm. progressive capitalist. And he obviously was. He was a rich landowner. Um, he owned many companies. And today yeah. his family has a billion dollar yeah. fund. And was- so. That's what I meant to ask, because it's like, it seems like his ideas are very anti-capitalist, but there's like, was he anti-capitalist? Because it seems like he's no, even, he even big, espoused being a capitalist, I feel like, as yeah, part of his like... Big was, lib energy. Yeah, yeah but he was a liberal. That was the word they would have used. And that was the word FDR used. Like they, and again, like part of that was just being the world, like everything that had right. happened in the past, like the, you know, the early 20th century communism became this thing that was like very tough and and again i don't want to get ahead of myself but that will be important later like it was very tough to be a communist or even a socialist in america even in in this time like the first red scare happened like i think in the early 1900s it wasn't quite as as um sort of like far-reaching as the second red scare which also uh henry lives through and fights Mm -hmm. against but um part of it was just that but part of it was like these were people who did believe like if someone is rich, it's because God wanted them to be rich. And, <laughs> right. and also like, I think like there was a bit of like Henry less so, but a lot of people like FDR absolutely believed in American hegemony as a way to create world peace. Right. Um, okay. And we'll, we'll get and into think, that more. I think that is what it it's from like, yeah, that I, idealism. Cause I think it's like, he knew, he knew that like the capitalism is is bringing like is like lifting people like us up or giving them a a kind of way of life or a standard of living that like hadn't been achieved before so he saw like that value but then also realized that capitalism because it's so focused on the individual will like degrade uh, eventually like i think yeah it's everything there's a lot that of stuff you need to live <laughs> Yeah. And I think like there, this was a period of immense prosperity and it was sort of like, oh, well, maybe that Karl Marx guy got it wrong. Maybe there aren't really crises and we can like, and liberalism is the patch cure that can actually solve the, we can solve these crises as they happen instead of just throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, that was definitely part of it. And I think just like, you know, like they were rich landowners, like they, they, they had material interests that made it kind of impossible. And, and then later big, you know, they own companies. So like there mm-hmm. was, there was no reason for them to want to throw that all away and not, and not have that anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, now again, like, um, so Henry's fought and, and they were Republicans, um, like yeah. for a long time, like Harry, Henry's father, um, was the secretary of agriculture to both uh, Warren Harding and Calvin Coolidge. Um, and that was like one of those things. And again, this was a time period where um, presidents from both parties would be like, well, this guy was the president that was a secretary of agriculture before, and he did a lot of good things. I liked what he did. I'm going to bring him back to my cabinet. And there was like, you know, dem- there was Democrats putting Republicans in their cabinets and, and Republicans putting Democrats in their cabinets. There was a lot more like hmm. cachet to bipartisan, bipartisanism, bipartisanship then for a lot of reasons, just people were interested in like this peace and this prosperity and all this stuff. And like, so yeah, Harry was like a, a, a big, also a big name in politics and stuff. Um, 
I think uh, the quote was Harry Wallace knew more farmers by name than anyone else in America. And I think like, that's really important to the Wallaces as well. They were as much as they were rich and, and sort of like bosses, they were, they were, uh, you know, like they did actually know the people that work for them and they, they were they, organizers. They were organizers. No That's a really yeah. good way to put it, Craig. I think um, they, they were like, and they were looking out for these people under them. They felt, they felt that these people were like them and these people were just them, you know, when they weren't as rich, when, you know, Hen when Papa Henry got his uncle, Henry got his start, you know, or when his father was just like a sharecropper or whatever, um, they there was that sort of sense of kinship and there wasn't that sort of like they're a big corporation farm that just has a bunch of migrant workers come in. That didn't exist at this time, right? It was all their neighbors that were working on their farms and people who had their own farms that helped out. There was there were still like cooperative farms at this point. Cooperative farms were like a big thing at this period. So there was just that more sense of interconnectedness that you got day to day. Um, and the Wallaces also just, um, were big believers in education. Um, when Henry was like six years old, they moved to, um, Ames, Iowa. So Harry could complete a degree at Iowa agricultural Co college. Um, and Henry, uh, was mentored there. So he grew up around the college campus, like from a young age and was like always looking up to these people who were like studying farming, not not just in like a practical sense, but in like a scientific knowledge sense. So he was like, there was this real connection to the land, but also this like American progress sense of like, this is a new science. We can do science to farming. We can make farming better for people. We can make it less backbreaking. We can, we can find, we can find new ways to make farming better for the people that do it and improve their lives kind of thing. Oh Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so Henry was mentored as a young man by none other than George Washington Carver. Who's George Washington Carver? George Washington Carver was the man who invented peanut butter. He invented peanut butter. Oh, yeah. Along, and lots of other peanut things. Along with like almost 300 uses for peanuts. And he was he was also black. Um, and right. he was sort of one of the first big like uh, black scientists in America. And, um, and yeah, I think that mm. also must've been a big influence on Henry not being a, a racist and being anti-racist. Um, because I think they both really agreed that studying nature and especially plants that God was in these things. And it was an important way to know God. Um, because Henry, uh, as much as George Washington Carver loved peanuts, Henry loved corn. <laughs> He was a fu he fucking loved corn. He once said <laughs> that he knew it as well as he knew people, and he had for it as much affection. Well, that says something. Yeah, it <laughs> really does. Corn corn is pretty good, but I think corn is great. On on a podcast called Second Bananas, George Washington Carver <laughs> needs an extra special shout out because nothing is closer to knowing God, in my opinion especially when you're hungry then and on eating the a peanut butter sandwich i agree <laughs> and then a peanut butter and banana sandwich oh, oh that it, is good yeah it's got it's got all the bases covered it is a little a little mm -hmm. bite of heaven it is a little oh, bit of heaven goodness. in every bite for sure um that's awesome that i don't know really good. that's another <laughs> thing i don't know if henry ever experimented with peanut butter but he he there's there was these claims throughout and i never saw any like proof of this other than just like what they said in the documentaries that he was like a big diets guy like he tried to he, he was like scientifically trying <laughs> to find the the most 
uh, optimal diet. And he peanut he butter and like, bananas. Yeah, he, Henry, he must have tried right it there. at some point. Like, <laughs> um, but he tried uh, milk and popcorn, and then strawberries and rutabaga. I like that he would always mm. do two foods. So yeah, like peanut butter and bananas. He got to try that at some point. Maybe that's what he landed on. That's popcorn, what I'm guessing. Popcorn is also a really good food. A really good take on like a a, a staple. Yeah, that's true. You know. Yeah. Well, and that's like, a corn one, so I can see cream, why he was trying cream to corn. Be into it. Yeah. Did, he, did Henry cream corn? Was he the first one to to cream Henry corn? Cream corn, and he don't care. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, he didn't. Let's keep care. this PG thirteen, guys. <laughs> there's a there's your sure, sure, sure. there's your quick. no, yeah, he. I don't I don't know if he invented cream corn or not. I I I'm guessing it was already creamed. Um, okay. He did. Uh, one of the things he did um, was uh, he. At 15 years old, he, the standard wisdom at the time in 1904 was if the corn looks good, it's going to give you the best yield. That was just mm-hmm. the standard thing. It's like beautiful corn gives you the, the most corn. Uh, and he grew a single crop in his backyard and disproved it. Mm-hmm. He like challenged like the, the, one of the leading agronomists of the day on the fact that, that like ugly corn could yield better than pretty corn. Love it, love it, love it. This is like uh, very early gene kind of select selecting selective breeding or yes, Wes, you are correct. Um, Henry. And uh and that this is not the last time he would challenge a superficial status quo. Um, it was kind of a problem throughout his life. Um, I would also like to challenge the concept of it being early selective breeding. Maybe it was the first time <laughs> that these people had done. It, but i feel like yeah. corn has been selectively bred for like millennia yeah i think this was of all definitely. the state definitely. he definitely changed the game a bit later down the road sure. and we'll get into that i think more like um what he his 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 he was again like you like like there was definitely a lot of corn breeding going on for sure um there there's always been breeding of crops since like ancient times but um, he but it was, was sort of it was the mostly one... like based on look, just like you were saying, like at the, like they would look, oh, this is a big corn. This is a big corn. We'll breed them and like make big corn. Yeah. I think that's part of it. I love, he I looked love at like other idea. traits and <laughs> no, my yeah. corn is bigger. No, just like trying to grow <laughs> the biggest corn possible. It seems like also there was just not a lot of stability in selective breeding. Like they didn't have a, a, a really clean way to be like, this corn has this yeah controlling the variables this corn has this that's what we want more of this corn also has this how do we make Mm -hmm. sure that these two corns will make will give us the the one the the characteristics we want wait a Mm -hmm. second Mm -hmm. my popping corn's gone all creamy hang on a second (laughs) my cream corn's done henry you creamed my corn again i'm tired of this (laughs) uh so um any sense of this corn farming yeah uh henry of course uh attends iowa state college uh he could not get a major in corn unfortunately (laughs) he did a major in animal husbandry husbandry not animal husbandry that's not a thing so if he had waited a century and a few years longer he may have been able to get a degree in corn with a k he could have got yeah exactly right i wonder (laughs) what he would have thought of corn with a k (laughs) I think he would have liked it. I'm gonna lie to myself. <laughs> I think he would. Have, I don't think he would have been ready. Yeah, he, would have he wasn't it. ready. But he would have been like, "Oh, oh, it's corn. Mm, I like that." Uh, he did. He. I'll tell you something. Someone he did like. 
Craig, uh, a woman named Ilo Brown. Uh, cool name. By all accounts, yeah. she was charming, social, and beautiful, and she was rich. That was another thing. Um, uh, I think Henry's family was pretty well off too, but uh, yeah, so like they get married in 1914 after a, a courtship, and um, it seems like she was basically his counterpart. Like Henry was like quite a character. But he was like, especially as a as a child and a teen, painfully shy, and you know he preferred to breed corn than necessarily go to parties. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. they complimented each other, and um, from there's not a lot about her other than um, that she was uh, quote an intensely private person whose entire life was her husband and her children. Which you know, right. that's for 1914 typical. Iowa. That's not <laughs> pretty, uh, not not unsurprising. Yeah. Yep. Not unsurprising, not surprising. Not not surprising. Thank you, Wes. Thank you. Or it's unsurprising. Unsurprising. Not, not, it's not not unsurprising. Yeah. If if you will. It, it isn't not unsurprising. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> it's very isn't not unsurprising in the least. Uh mostly. But yeah. So they get married in 1914, and it's not long before Uncle Henry dies. Um Big he Henry. died. He died waiting to deliver a sermon at a church. Wow. Uh, as you do, as as you as you do when you're a hardcore guy. I guess, um, yeah. Who, and that's a lesson to churchgoers to, you know, not dilly-dally on your way to the pew. Exactly. <laughs> that if you're re- if you want to go to church, get there. Let the priest deliver there, a sermon. Get, there, you never get know. that bum in the seat. Let that reverend go. You never know when you'll be waiting yeah. to see see the reverend Uncle Henry and then he just kicks the bucket. Gives, gives up the um, ghost. Too and, long. I think Uncle Henry was really the only thing uh, keeping Henry A, as we call him, uh, in the sort of formal Presbyterian church. Um, He really moved away from the church at this point. And from all accounts, he was sort of a guy who just wasn't satisfied with the answers someone would give him from a book. Um, He needed to study things and understand them himself and come to his own conclusions. So, of course, he uh, dabbled in a bunch of sort of other religions. I don't think he ever gave up on the idea of sort of like a God that is just and loving. I think that was really foundational to him in the way he believed. But um, he sort of tried a bunch of different stuff. And he finally kind of settled on this this thing called theosophy. Um, theosophy. You guys want to hear about theosophy? Yeah. Um, so theosophy is sort of like again at the early at the turn of the century there was sort of this mixing of spiritualism and science in ways that were sort of you know new and unique and there was this idea again like i said like henry was trying to find god through science yes okay Um, and he was also big into breeding selective breeding uh you know like evolution would have obviously been a big thing for him because it wasn't new at this time but it was definitely something that had sort of come to be part of science and uh, someone who's interested in plants and animals is, of course, going to study that. Uh, so best way to think of theosophy is essentially uh, Western thought with an Eastern flavor. So, you know, like a Mr. Noodles. Yeah. If you, if you, if you make a Mr. Noodles and you put some like green peppers uh-huh. and maybe cut up a chicken breast and, uh, and, and that kind of stuff and throw it in your Mr. Noodles, uh, that's really what you're looking at with theosophy. It's not... It's not Buddhism, it's not Hinduism, uh, it's it's uh, it's it's uh, Neoplatonism, Neoplatonism, uh, basic 
loose Christianity with a bunch of uh, sort of Eastern ideas kind of put in for some spice yo there's nazi imagery and there's symbols too (laughs) well yeah there was of course the the hindu uh thing and and yeah unfortunately wes uh they had a lot of ideas about how how evolution worked spiritually and they had an idea of the seven root races that was a big part of uh theosophy so there was definitely some junk science in the (laughs) mix here unfortunately and um seven though. okay so i was just saying seven that seems like that seems like six too many for a fascist I know, right? regime yeah well no it's not that th- this was again like one of those things that was sort of like a mix of traditional sort of like um ah. uh or like like uh like so creation that- myths with okay evolution that was what they were t- and there was not the necessarily that the seven root races were better or worse than each other it was that they sort of like, this is the order in which they emerge. So this is the oldest, the Hyborian or whatever <laughs> is the Hyperborean is the oldest race. And they were the wise ones that gave us like ancient knowledge. And then, then, you know, I can't remember. I, I would like to do an episode on theosophy eventually. I think it would be super yeah. fun. Um, and this is what I'm talking about. Like I could do a whole episode on theosophy and we could waste all our time on that. I'm not. Yeah. Gonna, it sounds cool. It is. It's Wes okay. is into it. Wes is gonna renounce Scientology. Maybe next time. I mean, I'm getting <laughs> close. Room for I just, I just room need to get both. to the root of the uh, swastikas so I can like. <laughs> so I can be well, cool the swastikas are an ancient Hindu. Wes, if you'll notice, they're the opposite way of the Nazi swastikas. Oh, I didn't know. The Nazis appropriated swastikas, unfortunately. Yeah, I did. Um, I did know that because they were also obsessed with Hinduism. Um, it, it was cons- there was a again like the whole idea of Aryan. Um, comes from well the word iran is the same root word as Aryan. it came from like sanskrit and stuff like that there was a sort of idea of like mixing of like the sort of fertile crescent and the cradle of civilization these ideas on early man with with a lot of different things at the time like a lot of the stuff that the nazis believed was just like science scientific theories that were eventually disproven essentially Mm -hmm. right like eventually Mm -hmm. the evidence didn't pan out um so there like again like we'll get into this later but uh the british empire was really just a successful nazi empire like if you think about it uh you know um but uh yeah like there was a lot of ideas about race at this time that are very different from our ideas and henry was not immune to those um there were just again like theosophy was like this new thing and like a lot of other new religions there were some people who really did believe in it and there were people who just use it to pay the bills and get money out of people. Mm. So, um, yeah, Henry was a dues paying member of the Des Moines lodge of the American theosophical society from 1925 to 1932. After that, his dues lapsed and he continued to search. He corresponded with many big names in theosophy, which will come back to haunt him later. Okay. Just so you know, Got some real crazy religion ideas. He was kind okay. of a kook in this regard. And I didn't, yeah. That didn't make him very welcome in, you know, parties and polite society sometimes. But yeah. Uh, okay. While Henry was doing all this, um, the thing was, uh, it was the 20s. We came to the 20s. And what do you guys think of when you think of the 1920s? Uh, economic Roaring. prosperity. Roaring <laughs> prosperity. Yeah. Um, mostly 
yeah wasn't there like the depression was coming shadowing well yeah yeah so so there was a big uh sort of sense of prosperity in the 20s especially in urban areas you know this was sort of when the stock market first came into its own in the u.s like the u.s started using finance in a way that only britain had done previously um but even in the 20s uh a lot of farmers were already kind of facing tough times like the cities were sort of spiraling up and the thing was uh farms were producing more food than ever before they were producing so much food that there was a surplus and prices went down and pretty soon it wasn't even worth bringing your crops to market it was just cheaper to just destroy them um and that wasn't good for Henry because, you know, Henry was a big rah-rah farms guy. And so was his dad, who was the secretary of agriculture at this point. But Henry was sort of like determined to do science and fix this problem. Yes. Uh, instead of fixing it, he in 1922, he developed the first commercially successful hybrid corn. And hybrid that's kind of what you were referring to earlier, Craig. It was the time when he managed to basically create corn that was it was easy to breed and select for specific characteristics based on what you needed to do it was Whether both were, ugly and um ubiquitous yes exactly just like me <laughs> <laughs> ugly and ubiquitous no um yeah and i think like also um you know you could grow corn to cream it you could grow corn to pop it you could you could do all you could grow corn for what you wanted to make you know whatever niche you wanted your corn to be Henry's corn would do the trick. That's a great, never so a great tagline. That's a great, yeah. I mean, I mean, well, I, yeah. love, I love when someone puts aside all all yeah. else and just focuses on the science, and and uh, that's what he did, and came up with hybrid corn. That's I'm sorry, Wes, you're not dope. you're not gonna like the rest of this episode because he does not no. focus on the science for long. He doesn't need to because it makes him a lot of money. Uh, well, so no, about, that's not what the science is about. So. After a few more I mean, years, scientifically speaking, within capitalism, <laughs> look, man, I think yeah. it kind of is. <laughs> yeah, sorry, Wes. <laughs> yes. uh, I guess it know. is science, Wes. He did, he did capitalist science. Yeah, I guess, Wes. Whatever. When are you going to do science to make this podcast make money? Come on. I mean, I guess I'd like to. That'd be nice. <laughs> I'd like you. I'd, I'd like you it. to as well. Work on that. Right. Uh, just turns us into the worst okay. podcast possible. We're talking about like Some crypto futures or whatever. <laughs> crypto corn. Uh, crypto corn. <laughs> it's the new thing. We're bringing Henry Wallace back from the grave. And he's into crypto corn. Um, yeah. So they, him and basically Ilo's family gives them a bunch of money and him and Ilo start pioneer hybrid, a hybrid seed company. You guys see the pun mm -hmm. there? Hybrid, right. hybrid. Uh, hi bo yeah it's nice h-i-b-r-e-d that's how we spell right, that's bread. how the company is i like it so, mm, that's cringy that's delicious very cringy well in the 1920s <laughs> it was not cringy it was no, very cool it was very cool very every company very, had a name like that um <laughs> like lockheed martin i don't know i don't think they started <laughs> in the 20s but um so they the first year high pioneer hybrid only records a 30 dollar profit but um, the, 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 their goal was actually to sort of get these hybrid seeds to as many farmers as possible. So that might have been part of it. But mm. you know what? It was a juggernaut. It could not be stopped because eventually uh, Pioneer Hybrid and its sister company, Highline Poultry Farms. A chicken Whoa, they're operation. still around. Oh, yeah. Okay. No, both of these companies are still around. Uh, they're owned by DuPont Chemical. <laughs> 
Oh, cool. So yeah, that really worked out well for Henry, but um, <laughs> they became agricultural giants. Uh, so it says here that 44% of the world's eggs are produced by hens derived from the genetics of highline poultry stock. I don't know wow. how they get genetics from chicken soup, but um, now, uh, like I said, just it was advances like this that sort of caused a lot of the surplus to happen because you could breed more reliable products, you know, and um, Henry and Harry are both hammering pretty hard on this, on this uh, problem that farmers aren't really making any money, despite the fact that they're feeding everybody and producing more food than ever. They're not mm -hmm. making any money. And uh, um, of course, Harry is the secretary of agriculture. Um but he's pushing Calvin Coolidge to do more. And Calvin is like, no, the Republicans don't like that, interestingly enough. So uh, Harry is uh, doing all he can, but he, like his father, dies at his job. He dies in his office as Secretary of Agriculture, uh, this time from a, uh, complications from surgery, essentially. He had a, a gallbladder surgery and the infection worsened and he got some kind of poisoning. I didn't write it down, so I can't remember. So that was pretty rough. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know, uh, but um, this was kind of when Henry was stepping up. He was writing in, he was basically editor of the, the Wallace's Farm Journal at this point. So he's doing science and he's doing journalism and he's doing editorialism, you know. Nice. Um, and he, a few years later, um, you know, once he's mourned his dad and all that stuff, he's there's a, a, a farm relief bill that comes to Congress called the McNary Hogan bill. And what that would do is require the government to sell all these surpluses in foreign markets instead of just domestic. Uh, unfortunately, this was a time when America had pretty strong isolationist tendencies in a lot of ways, especially after World War One, they weren't really interested in helping europe and stuff there was especially republicans so um congress passed it not once but twice in 1927 and 1928 and president coolidge who literally employed henry's father uh vetoed it both times to stay popular with republican voters so that was pretty much uh henry's kind of boiling point this was where he was like well uh, if I really want to help farmers, it's not science that's going to do it because science is already helping them. It's gone past helping them to harming them. Uh, it's going to be politics. And Henry, uh, in the Wallace's Farm Journal, decides to help a young, fresh face in politics out and starts campaigning for Frank Franklin Delano Roosevelt. That's the guy that's going to be president. Yep. You're right, Wes. That's the guy that's <laughs> going to be president in 1932. So he campaigns for FDR and obviously he's got connections like his father and his grandfather already worked for many politicians. So um, he ends up sort of, you know, campaigning for FDR, especially in Iowa, which is, of course, as you all know, a swing state. It's a big deal in elections. Oh. And uh, he writes some speeches uh, and uh, he's, you know, basically being like vote for FDR in the Farm Journal. He says the only thing to vote for in this election is justice for agriculture. With Roosevelt, the farmers have a chance. And with Henry's help, FDR just fucking crushes in Iowa. He just carries the state, which is rare for Democrats. They don't usually do that. Um, Iowa is generally a Republican voting state. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, Didn't FDR like 
didn't he win like every state when he became president especially of his term? early terms because he was pushing yeah. his whole new deal thing he he just this was um we'll get into that more and uh i think it's something that you know the democratic party doesn't really want to learn is that their most furthest left candidates are often their most popular mm. Uh, for very good reason, because they're often left in a way that, you know, uh, serves hmm. people and doesn't take from them. But uh, yeah, which is the exact reason why they can't. Yeah, exactly. Them. Exactly. Yeah, because yeah. mm. it doesn't help their their it betrays many, many the entire project of consultants. The party. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But yeah, so uh, FDR wins, just sweeps the country. It's like the Jed meme, but it's FDR. Um, we'll we'll probably maybe we'll Photoshop that if I remember. Remind me to Photoshop FDR. that later. It's FDR exclamation point. Yeah. Um. So FDR in return makes him Secretary of Agriculture. Makes sense, right? Yeah. Um. And of course, this is the New Deal. This is the period of New Deal. New Deal mania. Um. Everybody wants that New Deal. Um. And they want new it for deal. everybody. And Henry is like, hey, you know who would love the New Deal? Farmers. And he's yep. right. Yeah. Um, so this was the birth uh, of the Agricultural Adjustment Act, or AAA, which a similar program is still in effect today in the States, um, which is, hey, farmers, don't plant all your crops. Just plant some of your crops. Uh, we'll actually pay you not to plant crops because there's too many of this crop right and it was it was very radical sounds crazy time. it was like there were people being like this is bolshevism this is this is red communism you're we gonna can't pay, pay farmers to not, not work. to work <laughs> yeah um but uh what they did was they taxed the companies that process the crops another thing the democratic party constantly runs away from um mm. but um yeah it worked it uh it increased the crop prices and kept the farmers financially afloat which is what they needed because farmers at this time, uh, especially in the twenties were fucking rioting. They were, there's literally a story of farmers going into a courthouse, dragging a judge out and shaking a noose in his face. Uh -huh. If he didn't come down on the side of the farmers in this case, like this is what was happening in the twenties. Like people were ready to fucking riot, you know, and then in on into the thirties too. Um, yeah. Because this it is was, like the start of the, oh, I guess, yeah, I think you're going to get into the whole like Dust Bowl. Like, thing. is that that's like happening now or that's yeah, so, already been going on? So for a while? it was 32 when Roosevelt finally came into power. That was like a big chunk of time where uh, Henry was just basically like slowly building up his name in politics and and getting farmers organized and stuff like that. And there were strikes everywhere. He was involved in those. Um, you know, he just he was working with like. Craig said he was organizing. He was organizing the farmers into a force that could like get someone into the White House that would actually help them, um, that owed them, and that that they that would have to pay them back because they they got them there. Uh, something I think, you know, maybe still has to happen. So um, Henry didn't just stop there. He came up with a bunch of other programs, New Deal programs for farms, because the whole point of the New Deal was it wasn't just like. We're going to give you money. We're going to give you tax breaks. It was like, no, no, we're going to give you some money to get you through. We're going to give, we're going to tax, tax the rich. We're going to do all this stuff. The other thing we're going to do is guarantee everybody has a fucking job. Like we will create as many jobs as we need um, to make sure that everybody has a job so they can, they can make money and spend money. And that is how we're going to basically like pour gasoline onto the economy and make it go. 
and it just luckily turned out that as they were doing that, they were basically building a war economy. They didn't even necessarily, they knew that that stuff was going on and that was a possibility, but yeah. But it was mobilized as a force for infrastructure. Yeah. Overhaul or like completely brand new infrastructure. Yeah. And it was like, that's, that's a good point, Craig. It was a lot of like making new things, making things better. Highways, updating dams, things. bridges, big, big, large scope projects that would uh, require like decades of work. Yeah. And like lots of people. And again, this was before we had, you know, like backhoes and heavy, a lot of heavy duty equipment that was like, that is standard now. So this was like done by men. This was done by people. And like they were digging ditches and, and, you know, bolting things onto things and all that stuff. Um, some of the programs that Henry brought to Iowa and other uh, agricultural states, um, there was a crop storehouse system called the Evernormal Granary that had a lot of sort of like monitoring and, uh, you know, like tried to control the temperature and make sure the crops were kept for as long as possible. Um, he actually got a lot, a lot of rural areas electrified. So they were on the electrical grid. That was a big thing. And it was in Iowa where the first school lunch and food stamp programs were created by like sort of through Henry's ideas and stuff like that. Um, you know, something that still in limited effect persists to this day. I say the ever normal granary sounds very suspicious. I know, right? It's like, no, this granary is very normal, you guys. Yeah. It's totally normal. There's nothing, nothing wrong with it. Nothing to see here. It's <laughs> just a normal granary. Do not it's gaze like inside the granary. One. You will not go insane if you gra- gaze inside the granary. <laughs> if I were you, I'd just, you know, pay more attention to that granary over there. <laughs> it's a lot more suspicious. Exactly. In fact, granary. you seem a little bit suspicious for how interested you are in my granary. <laughs> you don't seem very normal, sir. Yeah. <laughs> Move along. Um, so, yeah. Um, the one other program he did come up with was like you said, Wes, the dust bowl, um, they created shelter belts, which was just basically putting in trees to slow down the winds, uh, to keep, uh, winds from just blowing all the topsoil away, which was part of the reason that the dust bowl happened. Right. And that was part of the reason the topsoil was all blowing away because they wouldn't really rotate their crops yeah. back then and then it yeah. just crop rotation yeah. was part of it um but yeah that was what they had to do to, to just get the winds to stop blowing more topsoil away uh-huh. so, yeah it's a rough time a rough time but rough Bowen. rough times make ever normal men ever uh, normal men make uncommon times <laughs> smooth. i don't know smooth times smooth Smooth times. smooth times make smooth buttery abnormal time. men like cream yeah. corn oh <laughs> cream corn oh. is a smooth time until until it comes out um so this the the supreme court actually struck down the aaa um because there's some proviso in the constitution Dicks. of like one group shall not tax another um what? essentially like you can't you can't tax one group to pay another which, um, you know, in theory seems hmm. like a very good idea, but it, in practice, it seems like it's kind of shitty. Yeah. But yeah, uh, they did. Pa- they basically passed a new modified version of it because it was working. It was working very well and it still works to this day. And like I said, they still pay farmers subsidies not to grow crops when there's a surplus of them. That's how that's how they make sure that it's like, you know, like oil surplus and stuff like that. It's all the same stuff. Because um, they need to keep you need to keep farming capacity around. Yeah, but you don't necessarily need it to be for all the stuff that the farmers choose to grow. Mm-hmm. So you just pay them to keep their fields fallow. Yeah, which yeah. makes sense to a certain extent. 
but then you could also just like be like why don't you grow this yeah <laughs> well i mean you know i like why don't you grow this instead of paying you i'll give you the like knowledge of and it seems like the problem is the system is focused around profits instead of you know what yeah. people need but what do i know uh, so um this was like a major transformation for a lot of rural america um it did sort of like what ended up happening was um a lot of these subsidies ended up being paid to large farms uh so it was a lot of owners like henry and unfortunately what happened was that meant these larger farms that had all these subsidies could buy up smaller farms especially those cooperative farms i talked about tenant farms and sharecroppers so especially in the rural south where they still made a lot of cotton and where they'd you know uh you know like freed all these black slaves and been like hey you're do you can go make money now and the slaves are like we don't what do we do? And they were like, why don't you do what you did before, but just for like a tiny amount of money, basically. Uh -huh. And there, there were white sharecroppers, obviously. Um, but the point was um, this sort of put an end to all that. And a lot of those small farmers, uh, yeoman farmers, sharecroppers ended up moving to the cities and uh, it increased proletarianization, as we call it. And, uh, you know, that was something that Henry definitely noticed. And again, he was also very pro worker. Um, and it was actually sort of like sharecroppers and uh, people like that and seeing the conditions they were living under while he was sort of touring a secretary of agriculture that brought him to a lot of conclusions about segregation and racial justice and stuff like that. So really cool in a way. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, he would end up working with not only labor leaders and farm organizers, but also uh, another, there were just a lot of communists around, um, you know, did happen, especially in rural you areas. You couldn't so, swing a stick without hitting one of those. Yeah. Yeah. They were everywhere. The farms were lousy with communists. See, they were living in the roof. <laughs> go up to the attic. You, you turn on a light and they'd scatter like rats. <laughs> quoting passages of the communist manifesto to you. And we didn't mind them, you know, they was just kind of a nuisance. Uh, yeah, but um, he, he, he would work with communists uh, both uh, while he was secretary of agriculture and, uh, and uh, worked with a lot of them further on down his career, including some that were later uh, credibly accused of spying for the Soviet Union. Um, which mm. did not help him later on. So we'll mm -hmm. see about that. Uh, but he was also working with unions, um, not just white unions, but um, integrated unions like the uh, Merchant Marine or Merchant, like the, basically the, the sailors unions, which were some of the only integrated unions at that time. Um, and then black unions like uh, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, who was a big African-American union in the cities and, and on the railways uh, that were a big part of sort of like uh, eventually civil rights movements and stuff like that and and the labor movement right on um, working with a lot of people must not have much time for science i know wes <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> sorry craig you were saying um you can see how some of the different areas that he's like organizing in and circulating in i guess would overlap well as like a political constituency or like as a political support base. Big time. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, Labor and farmers and just generally like civil rights 
these kind of intersections, mm -hmm. the crossing crossing over of overlapping movements, I guess. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. salt of the earth, as it were, and um, disgruntled audiences too. Yes, Dis well, yeah, that too, for disgruntled sure. people, in, and in that context as well, yeah. And I think he made them feel like they were heard and that they were that someone was fighting for them. So his he was always like a a a people power guy. I think that's really what pushed him as far as it, it got him. And that was also what started hurting him. Uh, Henry was really a man of the people. He, uh, he was a, an organizer and he, he was came and as he got as far as he did because he had people behind him who believed in him and who genuinely were sort of like part of his movement and part of his, his belief. He was not a guy who traded favors. He was not a guy who used the bureaucracy in fact, he was pretty bad at a lot of those things. And um, that was something mm -hmm. that Roosevelt, Roosevelt and Henry were really good friends. They, I think they personally got along really well, but mm -hmm. Roosevelt was also the president of the United States. Um, he, they do kind of say that his cabinet was like a coalition of various forces that wanted various things from him. And part of that coalition was organized labor. Part of that coalition was people like Henry. Part of that coalition was exactly the people that Henry was against uh, that, you know, had like vetoed the bills about the farm and uh, didn't like the new deal. You know, that was part of the deal Roosevelt kind of had to make to satisfy as many people as he did. And he did express uh, doubts about Wallace, uh, about Henry. And he was like, he's kind of too aloof and he does not know how to grease wheels. He does not know how to make things easier on himself by, uh, you know, not even kissing ass, but just, you know, shutting the fuck up when it was appropriate kind of thing. Henry was not that guy. Uh, he also was like kind of a weird religious scientist <laughs> guy who liked to talk a lot about corn. You know, um, this was not a guy that did well in Washington. Hey there, listeners. Wes here. That's where we're going to end this one. The story of Henry A. Wallace proved too great to be contained by just a single cast. So we'll be back next time to conclude our discussions. In the meantime, if you have any comments or suggestions about the show, you can always email them to us at secondbananaspod at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram, so you can DM us there at 2BananasPod. That's it for now. Hope you can join us again next month. Bye!